This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network Partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Catherine Besteman, Francis F. Bartlett, and Ruth K. Bartlett, Professor of Anthropology at Colby College. We'll be talking about her book, Militarized Global Apartheid, published by the Duke University Press in 2021. Thank you very much, Catherine, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, it's my pleasure. Um, So at the New Books Network, we often start by getting to know our authors. And I have long been a fan of your work, uh, from your research in Somalia to your work with Somalian refugees in Maine. Um, So I'm wondering if you could tell us about your background as an anthropologist and how this um, long trajectory led to this book in particular. Sure. Thanks for the question. That's it's always kind of helpful to to see the um, to see the way the journey has you know brought brought one to a particular point. So militarized global apartheid is very 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 much kind of the outcome of all of the different trajectories of my research and scholarship and um, and ethnography and collaborations uh, through my entire career. Uh, so my career began with fieldwork in Somalia just before the Somali Civil War. And with the collapse of the, of the Somali state and uh, the, um, the flight of uh, millions of refugees across the border, this was sort of pre-internet. And so it was terrible to try to find out what had happened to the people who I knew. Um, so I spent about a decade just trying to understand the collapse of the state, what had precipitated the collapse, what were the, what were the global interconnections and interventions in Somalia that had contributed to and exacerbated the tensions inside that state that led to its collapse and that led to the particular patterning of violence. And, you know, as you can imagine, it was a really depressing decade. The story of Somalia was is really a, a terrible one. Um, and so 
following that research, I turned my attention to South Africa. I was looking for um, an example that I could dig into of a country coming out of decades of violence and, and really sort of intense internal strife. And South Africa was coming out of apartheid, uh, you know, at that point, which was the late 90s, um, things were looking so hopeful in South Africa. So I spent the next decade working in South Africa, coming to understand that sort of the, the rainbow nation um, image that we were also enthused about around the world, belied a, a really, you know, sort of ugly, ongoing um, experience of, of apartheid life structured along the lines of race and class internal to South African society. And that period of time in South Africa helped me really, really grapple with and understand um, the enduring power of these forms of difference that are built on, uh, built on and built in order to maintain inequalities um, of race and class, but also of citizenship. And uh, so as I was finishing my book about Cape Town, which is called Transforming Cape Town, I was back home in Maine where I live and, uh, and, it, it, and Somali refugees from the um, very little teeny town that I lived in in Somalia began showing up in Maine. Uh, they didn't know I was here. I didn't know that they were coming here. I've been trying to track them all, all over the country as refugees were being resettled here, had not had any success. And, um, and it turned out they had chosen to move to Maine of their own accord. And we found each other again in 2006. So the next decade was spent just, you know, really practicing deep hanging out with them in addition to lots and lots and lots of um, activism work uh, that, was, that was divided between trying to understand what had happened to them since 1991, well, really 1990, um, from 1990 until their resettlement in 2004 to 2006. Uh, just tracking their trajectories of flight across borders, waiting in refugee camps in different countries, applying for resettlement, um, finding their way into resettlement programs or getting getting you know thrown out of them. And then those who finally did get reaccepted, which of course were just a tiny minority, um, finding their way to this country, finding their way ultimately to Lewiston, and then beginning to go about the process of, of trying to rebuild a life, trying to build a new life in Lewiston. So that book, Making Refuge, was about you know their whole journey, um, and it was kind of forward-looking in the sense of what is it going to take for them to be able to chart a course towards the future um, that is a life they want to be living in this new environment. But that brought me into a, a very profound understanding of displacement and exile and the disciplining and violence-producing effects of borders in a way that I hadn't really had to encounter before. And so those three projects, um, which kind of put, you know, in front of me, um, the, the violences and the structural inequalities caused by racism, class inequalities, and borders um, kind of came together in my understanding of what it took for Somali refugees to be able to seek refuge safely in a way that would be enduring and sustaining and nurturing of life, and just how incredibly hard that was. And that's what led me to militarize global apartheid. It was a real reckoning with the forces that exist, the structures and forces that exist all over the world, not in any particularly coordinated way, but in a sort of an iterative, overlapping, messy way that constrain the ability of people to move to find safe, fulfilling lives of dignity 
and, you know, and health and, and, and again, fulfillment. Um, and most especially the ways in which their ability to move is bounded by race and, and class. Yeah, thanks so much for explaining you know, the path that took you to this reckoning and to us by extension. Uh, and, you know, I really want to dig into the titular concept of the book, uh, Militarized Global Apartheid. So I'm wondering if you could define this concept for us and tell us what is at stake in explicitly naming the world we inhabit as militarized global apartheid? Sure. Thank you for that question. So apartheid, of course, you know, comes directly from the system of structured legal white supremacy that was enacted in South Africa. And so my, my decade of working in South Africa um, gave me a really good and solid grounding of the understanding of how an apartheid state was constructed, what, what the legal terrain was on which it was founded, and what the sort of ideologies and beliefs um, and popular consciousness um, had to come into play in order to sustain such a profoundly evil and unequal system of white supremacy. And a lot of people have talked about apartheid as, as having gone global. I'm, I'm far from the first person to talk about you know, the concept of global apartheid, whereby countries across the global north seek to restrict and exploit um, black and brown people. And so I don't, that, that's not a new concept, and it's a concept that makes total sense to me. I think there's lots and lots of evidence for that. Um, so what I add to that debate is the ways in which this control has become militarized, the ways in which security and military um, technologies, policies, practices, and language um, have come to be enacted by both governments, but also security actors across the global north to keep black and brown people in their place, um, or at least to control and police their movement in ways that benefit the global north and don't necessarily benefit the global south. Yeah, on that note, you know, one of the most important parts of the book for me was your articulation of plunder. And, you know, in that part, you show that so-called insecurities of the global south are actively produced by the global north, as you just uh, explained to us. So can you speak to how the relationships between security and insecurity can produce existing inequalities across the globe? Sure. Um, I think the question of security is, you know, a profoundly fascinating one. It's so complex. But where I always start is security for whom? You know, security is not just sort of this blanket uniform concept. Security is always envisioned as being security on behalf of some, you know, particular group, some demographic, some country, some, some, some corporate entity, some, you know, elite entity or, you know, or whatever. And so when we're talking about security and the need to protect, um, the need to implement uh, security restrictions or security protocols, the need to collectively invest in security, um, that's predicated upon a belief that there's an other who is to be feared and controlled and managed and incarcerated, you know, and expelled, uh, you know, or killed. And so that to me is the interesting question is always trying to figure what's the dichotomy in the security language, in the security practice, who is being securitized and for whose benefit. And so um, security to my mind, the way that it's enacted in the contemporary world is always about maintaining inequalities it's always about carcerality. It's always about protecting class privilege. It's always about protecting white supremacy. Always, always, always. And it's always about protecting patriarchy too. And so trying to understand 
how those various forms of securitization overlap and intermesh to produce what I call security regimes or even security imperialisms is part of the project that I'm undertaking in this book. Yeah, and you know, you ask this important question, security for whom? And as I was reading the book, I kept asking myself, mobility for whom? So, you know, I really want to ask you about mobility and what it does in this book, and specifically, how do the processes of removal, refusal, or border thickening you explore in the book challenge or expand the term mobility itself? Mm. Yeah, I mean, but mobility is kind of a neutral concept, you know, mobility. Mm-hmm. Like, everybody's in favor of mobility, you know? It's <laughs> like, we celebrate how the contemporary world is this highly mobile world where ideas circulate, you know, with the speed of lightning and money circulates all over the place and capital circulates and goods circulate. And, you know, we've become recently uh, with the disruptions in the global supply chain so distressed about, you know, the interruptions to the mobility of goods that we claim we can't live without or that we that we desire and want. Um, but of course, people are never part of that equation, or, or rather only certain people are, are part of that equation. Um, and so again, this is, you know, this brings to the, us to the very same question when we celebrate mobility, it's mobility for whom? And so we see, this is where I think we see so clearly the operations of militarized global apartheid, those people, those categories of people whose mobility is, um, is enabled supported, facilitated through certain kinds of security programs, and those people whose mobility is constrained, policed, um, and carceralized. I may have just made up that word, but I think it's a good one. Uh, And so, you know, when you look across the sorts of programs and security protocols that are implemented by different governments, you see so clearly, you know, things like the whitelist and the blacklist for gaining access to the EU, things like the Five Eyes program that the white settler colonial nations of the world are all engaged in collectively that Japan is about to join, I believe. Um, And so these very intentional programs to say, okay, basically, white people from these countries And certain elites from these other countries can be part of this program, but everybody else is subject to this whole other set of requirements for how they're allowed to move across borders. Yeah, and you know, you the uh, question of race and racialization has come up so far in our discussion. So I'm very curious about how you see the relationship between race, securitization, and enduring forms of empire. Well, you know, a lot of the argument that I make about militarized global apartheid is that this, what I'm, what I'm sort of characterizing is this, this new iteration of apartheid, a militarized uh, form of policing the movement of black and brown people um, for the benefit of capital and for the benefit of the global north, um, is, is, has its roots, obviously, in colonialism and imperialism. So part of the book's charge is to show how these these long enduring axes of the you know the production of inequality on a, on the basis of race keeps reappearing in these new forms in these new formations and um so i i i'm at great pains to show that so I, i'm not trying to claim that this emergence of apartheid on a global level again is somehow new it's not it's directly related to what started happening 500 years ago, and then what started happening 200 years ago, and then what started happening 100 years ago with the League of Nations and um, 
and then you know the the um, the immigration control regimes that got it began getting inaugurated around the world after World War One. So this is this is a, a management of people on the basis of race that has a very deep and long history, and the particulars may change, the language may change. Um, I think it's become much more militarized in certain kinds of ways, uh, but it's the same story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, this brings us to another concept that really stuck out to me throughout the book, which was maintenance. So in the book, you show that militarization is a form of maintenance of inequalities produced around mobility and labor, as you just so beautifully put it. So what about the maintenance of inequalities in particular informs your thinking about securitization and militarization? Sure. So inequality is a necessity for capitalism, right? Capitalism depends on the ability of one group of people to exploit another in its most simplistic form. It it depends on the maintenance of inequalities in order to generate profits. And those profits are to be protected at all costs. That's that's the basis of that's the basis of capitalism. And in addition, of course, to being based in, in private property, which is also about inequality. Um and so this, this overall regime of militarized global apartheid very much exists, not just to protect white supremacy, but absolutely to protect capitalism and capitalist profits. And so by controlling the mobility of people, you control the flow of labor and you control the conditions of laboring. And by enabling the legal movement of people, um, primarily through these sort of temporary worker programs or foreign worker programs, um, that's a, a form of labor exploitation that benefits capitalists. And sure, there are countries across the global South that are dependent upon the remittances sent back. But that's maintenance. Remittances basically maintain people. They don't allow for any kind of flourishing or, or actual economic agency. Um, it's a maintenance practice. And so the, the use of these sorts of programs, as opposed to saying, people go wherever you want, find whatever jobs you can. You know, and struggle for democracy, democratic participation, equal wages, and whatever arenas you find yourself in. Fight capital to the teeth to figure out how you're going to, you know, distribute the profits of all of your labor collectively. So the entire system is set up to ensure that that can never happen, um, and that's that's terrible. You know, that's not a world I want to be part of. Uh, so that's the maintenance. Um, piece of it, I think, is is the ability to maintain the conditions that are necessary uh, for the accrual of capitalist profit to the few. Yeah, I find this really, really refreshing because, you know, recently maintenance is also often seen as, uh, has often been discussed as a form of care or, you know, maybe something um, that's positive, but it's also important to show what maintenance makes endure, right? Um, and I really appreciated that uh, in your response just now. Oh, that's such an interesting point. I, I don't, I don't think about maintenance Maintenance to me seems, um, I guess I do think of it with a certain kind of hostility as opposed to like flourishing or um, investment, you know, or something that, 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 that includes some kind of emotional commitment. And maintenance to me is like caretaking, which is, can be like cursorality. <laughs> so, <laughs> it does not have that, that inflection of care. So mm-hmm. that's interesting. 
Yeah, but I mean, yeah, on the flip side, as you just mentioned, like caretaking or care are also, you know, very complex that embody all these uh, contradictions. So, yeah, I, I found the book very important to think with um, as I think about care myself. Um, so another thing I really found refreshing in the book was your kind of big picture approach, if I may say so. So within the book itself, you say that you're invested in writing about a totalizing system and an overarching set of logics while intentionally shifting the gaze from agency. So how did you arrive at these decisions on the scale and goal of the book? And why did you choose to approach militarization and securitization in this particular way? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. So, you know, as you know, of course, um, writing a book in this style is is not normal for anthropologists <laughs> you know, or um, sociologists or geographers mm-hmm. or um, other interdisciplinary scholars. So this is an unusual book for an anthropologist to write. Um, I consider it completely anthropological because it's almost entirely based on ethnography and it comes directly out of my own ethnographic experiences and research. Um, but it's not an ethnographic book in the sense of being based on first-hand immediate fieldwork. It's, mm-hmm. it's based on, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of ethnographies I read to try to put this whole sort of totalizing picture together. Um, I'm an ethnographer who whose entire, you know, ethnographic practice has been the sort of fine-grained, detailed, very intimate, um, on-the-ground uh, sort of sort of ethnographic work. That's been my my sweet spot and what I love about anthropology. And this book is not that. Um, it is It is very much stepping away from that. And I think it was an important, for me, it was a really important project to show what ethnography adds up to. Ethnography is lots of different kinds of things, but, but the collective impact of ethnography on the world, I think is something really, really powerful and worth reckoning with. So this book, um, this is point number one. So this book was part of an effort to say, look what we can do with ethnography. We can tell these stories of incredible power and scope. Um, and that's really, that's an important thing that, that we need to be doing. Point two, in response to your question, was I'd been involved with a group of um, scholars on who work with refugees in a number of different events where we got together to talk about um, the, the way in which the focus on the so-called refugee crisis in Europe after 2015 uh, brought a ton of money to look at refugee agency and the choices refugees were making and how they were navigating their way up to Europe. And we were distressed about um, the potential implications of such a fine-grained focus on refugee agency, um, both as forcing attention on not the thing that was the most interesting about what was happening in 2015 and 2016, whereas we felt the real story was more about why is mobility so hard? Whose mobility is being constrained and why? What are the larger forces at play in creating this crisis, this so-called crisis? Um, But we also were concerned about the idea that ethnography could be used as a tool to kind of unearth and spotlight and reveal to the to the curious public how re, how refugees were trying to navigate in the world. It seemed like a misplaced focus on people whose lives, um, for very good reason, should be kind of kept secret, you know, and subversive mm. and protected and given the dignity of. 
privacy without being pried open all the time. So part of my pivot in this book was explicitly to say, I am not going to tell you about refugee agency. Like you don't get to know that, um, you know, taking a page from Andrew Simpson's ethnography of refusal. Like we're not going to look at refugees here. We're going to look at the structures through which refugees navigate, but we're not going to talk about their strategies for how they navigate those structures. We're going to talk about whose interests are served by all of these structures being put in place because these are created, they are intentional, and they benefit certain categories of people and they disable others. And we need to be asking ourselves questions about about those beneficiaries. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And thanks so much for putting it so nicely. I think, you know, the phrase you use, what ethnography adds up to will be something I will personally take to heart uh, in the coming years. And, you know, I'm also really curious about your methodology in coming up with, um, you know, such an important sort of structural critique, right? So what methods does one use for a book like Militarized Global Apartheid that really scales up the stakes of ethnographic and social theory? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this was, a, this was a book based in the literature. So it comes out of my own background of conducting deep, intensive, um, highly kind of you know, interpersonal ethnography, ethnographies in three different locations. And it comes out of, I've really benefited from having some wonderful, wonderful collaborative partnerships over the years um, that have stretched me and pushed me in thinking, you know, about militarization, um, my partnership with the Network of Concerned Anthropologists, which was organized to fight against the deployment of anthropologists as part of the uh, military interve- the U.S. military intervention in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, that group of 11 anthropologists, you know, were just phenomenally, phenomenally fascinating to think with about militarization and how we conceive of security. Um, the work that I've done it, with my partnership with Hugh Gusterson over the years, I think we've done maybe five or six different uh, book projects together um, along the theme of security and, and militarization, but really trying to make sense of um, the post-Cold War transformations in the security landscape of the contemporary world. Um, so that partnership and the work, uh, all of the different projects that we worked through for that partnership really kind of helped focus me and orient my thinking around questions of security and securitization. And then the network of refugee scholars that I've had the, the benefit of working with. So here I'm thinking about folks like uh, Heath Cabot and Georgie Ramsey and uh, Shahram Khosravi and, you know, just wonderful creative scholars kind of at the forefront of, of challenging and deconstructing the ways in which the standard tropes of how refugees have been talked about in, in anthropology. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, methodologically, one component of this was leaning hard into what I learned from all of these collaborative partnerships. And then the other dimension was just leaning hard into the body of ethnographic work, as I already said. And, um, and just, it was like reveling in, um, in, you know, the ethnographic library available to me and taking a full scope of what my colleagues across the world are doing in their specific locales and speaking to each other and what the larger conversation is that's emerging out of reading all of these books um, together. Yeah, I really appreciate how you show us that, you know, a book doesn't come out in an atomized or individualistic way. It's a result of a collective conversation. So I really appreciate that. Um, 
And, you know, on a similar note, you end the book with an invitation to your readers to imagine how we can bring about new worlds. So I want to learn more about your imaginaries and practices to this end. How do you use pedagogy, collaborations, or and community work to make other worlds possible? <laughs> so this work is done. Thank you for that. That's a great question. Um, so I'm, I'm deep into that right now. Um, I think what, what this book brought me to you know, with the focus on militarization and maintenance, you know, I, I use the word containment um, also, I think almost interchangeably maybe with, with the way that you had asked me about maintenance. Um, it brought me to having to spend a lot of time thinking very seriously about carcerality, which was not something in my own personal trajectory I'd ever paid much attention to. I mean, the U.S. carceral regime you know, I repeated the same things everybody always repeats, you know, we're the world's largest da- a- a jailer, you know, we, we're living in an era of mass incarceration, we all know its roots in, um, in the control of uh, working class populations and the control of black people in America, the control of indigenous Americans, um, the control of Mexican Americans, especially in the Southwest and California, and the ways in which all of these arenas of control that intersected with strategies and technologies to develop during colonial and imperial campaigns to um, arrive at the policing and carceral structure structure that we impose in, in this country today. So I knew all that, but I hadn't really turned my attention to carcerality in a way that committed me um, as an intellectual and a personal and a passion project. And, uh, and that that's, that's really where I sit right now. So I, I feel, um, it makes sense to me to think that my entire career to, has brought me to this point of an acute and specific and very engaged focus on carcerality through the lens of abolition. And so the, the imagination, um, abolition is, is about being able to imagine something different than we have created now, right? It's the ability to imagine what kind of a society we actually want to live in that benefits most people that allows you know, the greatest number of people to lead fulfilling, flourishing lives of, of dignity and mutual respect and humanity. And so, um, so I have spent most of the past two years in, in, engaged in that sort of envisioning work and working with a number of collaborators here in Maine around abolitionist visioning pro- projects. Um, and abolitionism is, um, you know, it's tricky because uh, there are all of these debates and discussions within the abolitionist community around what is what is a reformist undertaking to engage in and what is actually transformative. Um, what is a non-reformist activity to engage in that benefits people who are caught in the jaws of the carceral system while not um, supporting or enabling the expansion of the carceral system. So I get all of those debates. Um, but I think, you know, my interest right now is, is sort of specifically focused on a couple of different things. Um, one is on how do we provoke and enable and open opportunities to have more broad-ranging conversations in Maine. I'm taking a very local approach, I'm like zooming back in after this, you know, enormity of apartheid in Maine about shifting from carcerality to deal with social problems to other forms of managing, um, responding to, and ameliorating harm. And I feel that the language of of abolition is language that is, you know, it's so sensible, it's so human, 
Um, and it's language that people in Maine, I think, will really be able to understand. You know, do you want to meet harm with harm and punishment and more violence? Or do you want to meet harm with healing and reparation and justice and accountability and having everybody come out better than, you know, before the harm was perpetrated? What do you want? Like, everybody's going to choose two. Who's going to choose one? So getting that message out there, figuring out avenues and vehicles and venues for doing that sort of, I think of it as public humanities work. It's one thing that I'm, I'm really engaged in working on. And then the other thing is um, thinking about, because I'm a college teacher, is how do we use pedagogy and um, the sort access to the sorts of things that colleges enable um, to benefit people who are incarcerated in ways that don't then expand the carceral regime, but that do expand the agency of people who are caught by the carceral regime. And so I've begun uh, teaching courses in uh, prisons in Maine and building an educate a program at Colby um, through which incarcerated students and non-incarcerated students can learn together in the same class with face-to-face meetings. And then also innovating something that I don't think has ever happened in the United States before, which is invite- inviting an incarcerated person to co-teach with me a course at Colby. And so Leo Hilton, who's at Maine State Prison, co-taught a course with me at Colby on carcerality and abolition this past spring. First time, certainly in Maine, an incarcerated person has has taught a college-level course, and we think in the whole country. And so just finding ways to open these doors and to say, look, this can be done. Look, this can be done. You know, we can can begin to chip away at carcerality in, in these little teeny ways that we don't know how these little teeny chips are going to play out, what kind of cracks they're going to open, how we're going to bring the walls down. But, but I have to believe they will. Wow. Thanks so much, Catherine, for giving us so much to think with as we end. And thank you very much for joining us and your insights. It's my pleasure. Thanks for your interest in my work. I'd delight to talk with you. Of course. It's my pleasure. I'm your host, Aliza Rujan. This discussion of militarized global apartheid, published by the Duke University Press in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.